Let me invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 13. We are entering this morning what I believe to be some of the most astounding territory in all of Scripture. In John chapter 13, we are going to behold the scene in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Normally, when you uh, begin to preach a story like this, you, you search long and hard for an illustration, an equivalent that will help us to wrap our minds before we jump into this passage around exactly what's happening in this passage. And uh, I, I first preached John chapter 16, John chapter 13 in, in our student ministry several months ago and uh, fell in love with this story and, and instantly knew that I would be looking for more opportunities to preach this passage because of how much it spoke to my heart and the worship that it raised towards Christ for what we see about him in this passage. But the first time I preached this passage, I couldn't quite find an illustration that quite helps us wrap our minds around this. And so for the past several months, I've been keeping my eyes peeled for a story that somewhat mimics or reflects what Jesus does in this passage. We're going to read it in just a moment, but in this passage, Jesus is going to get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of his disciples. And while I've been looking for several months for an equivalent in our culture to something like this happening, there really just isn't one. <laughs> there, there, there is no cultural equivalent to what we see in this passage. What we're going to look at is the ultimate authority in the world, humbling himself to perform one of the most least desirable tasks in all of the world for men who don't deserve it. And so I've been watching and looking and thinking maybe, maybe there's a story or there's been a story of, of something like, like, like President Trump or President Obama doing something, one of the highest authorities we can think of in our minds, doing something that no one else in the country would want to do. And obviously that was tough to find. Like it, it, doesn't, it doesn't exist in our culture and in our society what we see Jesus doing in this passage has no equivalent. And so we jump headlong into this passage without illustration. But what I want you to do is to go into this passage knowing that there is no equivalent. There is nothing quite like what we see Jesus doing here. So with that in our minds... I want you to draw your attention to verses 1. We have a lot to read this morning. We're going to read verses 1 all the way down to verse 26. So this is going to take a minute. Let me encourage you to focus and, uh, and stay with this passage as we read through it. John chapter 13, verses 1 through 26. 
Let's read this story of Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments. And taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you will understand hereafter. Peter said to him, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. You are clean, but not all of you. For he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then the Lord and teacher washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. And he, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, that is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. An incredible scene in which Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. To this point in the Gospel of John, 
Jesus has been firmly cemented as God in flesh. In fact, all of the Gospel of John up until this point centers around showing that truth to be true. From chapter 1 all the way through chapter 12, uh, often referred to, uh, the, the Gospel of John is often broken down into two books. The first, the first book is through chapter 12, and it's called the Book of Signs. Signs that are testifying that Jesus is who he said he was. And so the, the first several chapters of the Gospel of John are filled with the miracles that Jesus performed and the lessons that Jesus taught, primarily centering around who he is. He's turning water into wine. He's healing young children from afar, healing a blind man, feeding 5,000, walking on water, healing a lame man. All of these testifying to who he is and that is set up in the Gospel of John as he is the Son of God. His teaching, driving home the message that he and the Father are one, that he is sent from God, that he's returning to God, that he is the Son of God, that he is God. And that awareness and that knowledge is essential as we move into John chapter 13. Because at this point in the gospel, we should be firmly aware of the fact that Jesus is God. And so then, as, the, as John transitions into chapter 13, what we see is even more astounding when we realize who Jesus is. Jesus is washing his disciples' feet. But with the conclusions that have been drawn in the Gospel of John, perhaps a better way to say it is God is washing men's feet. God is washing the feet of man. God is serving men. An incredible and astounding scene as we see God serving men, God washing the feet of men. So we're, we're brought up to speed on the content of this, of this example, of this picture in, in verses one through four. In, in verse one, Jesus, we're told that Jesus knows what's coming. It's, it's the feast of the Passover. Jesus knows what's coming. That's a reference to his betrayal and his death. He knows where he's going. He's going to return to the Father. And then we're given a note at the end of chapter one that's really important that Jesus loves his disciples. And he loves them to the very end. He loves them all the way through his time on earth. He is driven by a love for these men. In verse two, we're told that Judas has a, a much different emotion. That the devil has already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. So Jesus knows what's coming. He knows where he's going. He loves his disciples. Judas, in his heart, already made up his mind. He's going to betray Jesus. That's a really important 
head note to this passage. And we're gonna, we're gonna come back to it later. But in verse three, it returns to placing Jesus in, in, in the center of the picture. Jesus knows that the Father has given him all things and that he has come forth from God and was going back to God. So Jesus, now he, he, he knows where he's going. He knows what's gonna happen. Judas going to betray him. Jesus has all authority, we're told in verse three. All authority has been placed in his hands. That's a really important preface to what we're going to see in the next scene. All authority in the world rests in the hands of Jesus. And he knows that. He's fully aware that all authority is in his hands. So what, with that awareness, what does he do with those hands? With those hands to which all authority is given, verse four tells us what he does. He gets up from supper. He lays aside his garments and he takes a towel, a servant's towel and he girds himself. He he wraps this towel around himself. Verse five, and he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So with full awareness that all authority is in his hands, he takes those hands and places upon himself the clothing of a servant. And he he takes those hands and, and he puts them on the floor. He gets down on his hands and his knees at the feet of these men who have been following him and calling him teacher. He's he's on his hands and knees at their feet. And he pours water into into just a little bowl. There are probably two bowls in this scene, pouring pouring the water from one bowl into another bowl over their feet. And and with those hands to which all authority has been given, he, he wipes down the disciples' feet. He takes the towel and and he dries their feet. He goes down the list of disciples, one after the next, sacrificially serving each one of them. He comes to Peter in verse 6. Peter is apparently the first one to resist Jesus, and he does so aggressively. So in verse 6, he comes to Peter, he comes to Simon Peter, and he, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus says, you don't understand this right now, but you will, hold on, you'll understand this soon. Just let me do this. Let me do this. And Peter says no. No. In verse eight, Peter said to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. The the terminology that's used there could could not be 
a harder negation that's placed towards Jesus. This is Peter saying, absolutely, no, never, ever. In, fa- in fact, like, if we were to translate this literally, it would be, no, never, wash my feet forever. It's, it's absolutely no. Never in all of eternity will you wash my feet. Peter stakes his claim firmly in verse eight. And essentially what he says to Jesus is, Jesus, you don't wash me. You are the authority. You are the master. You're not the one that washes me. Which is a dangerous thing to say to the man who washes away our sin. Which is exactly where Jesus goes. Jesus says in the end of verse 8, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, you need me to wash you. Now, these next few verses get uh, just a little bit confusing because Jesus is going to bounce back and forth between referring to washing spiritually and referring to washing physically. And I think it's important to note that the washing that Jesus actually does in this passage is not a spiritual washing. We're gonna see the purpose of this washing later on in this passage. But when Peter makes the statement that Jesus doesn't wash him, Jesus corrects that thinking. Peter, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. Peter, you need my washing. He's correcting Peter's extreme statement of resisting the washing of Jesus. Be careful, Peter. If I don't wash you, you're in trouble. Speaking of spiritual washing, he's speaking of the same kind of washing that Paul that Paul writes to Titus about in in Titus chapter three, verse five, the the washing of regeneration. The, The washing away of sins that only Jesus can do. The same type of forgiveness that we saw in our scripture reading earlier, earlier in our service, Jesus saying, I I I forgive you. Your faith has made you has made you clean. It's made you pure. Your faith has saved you. It's that kind of washing that Jesus points to here. You need my washing, Peter. So be careful. Be careful to resist my washing. So Peter, in in just epic Peter fashion, responds in uh, in verse nine. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. So, so Jesus says, Peter, be careful. You need my washing. And Peter's like, all right, wash away. Let's, let's go. If, if I'm desperately in need of your washing and I'm with you on that, Jesus, I need you to wash me, then why are we stopping with the feet? Wash all of me. Okay, so Peter is responding the right way to the spiritual statement that Jesus just made, but now Jesus has to bring it back to the physical washing that he's going to do as an example for his disciples. And so that's exactly what he does. As, as he transitions, Peter, you're, you're, you're saying the right thing, but verse 10, Jesus said to him, look, he, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, 
but not all of you. So Jesus transitions from speaking of the spiritual washing. You need my washing, Peter. Don't resist this. You have no part with me if you're not washed by me. To Peter saying, okay, wash all of me. To Jesus saying, well, you're already clean. You are clean. Because of the word that I've spoken to you and because of your faith in who I am, you're clean, Peter but I still need to wash your feet. <laughs> I still need to show you as an example a model of sacrificial service. So don't resist my washing, physically or spiritually. Don't resist this, you need it, and now let me wash your feet. He tells Peter, you're clean. You're clean, I just wanna wash your feet. But again, he makes an interesting side note in verse 10. Last line in verse 10, but not all of you are clean. Verse 11 explains that, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. So Jesus, looking to his disciples, he says, you're clean. You've been washed by my word. You've been washed by your faith. But not all of you are clean. And when he says that, he's thinking of Judas. Judas who is about to betray him, Judas has not been spiritually cleansed by Jesus. And he's about to show us that in his actions toward Jesus. Not all of you are clean. So, this is an amazing scene. There's a, there, there is, we could spend weeks in this passage. There is so much happening in this passage, boggles the imagination. But as we break this down this morning, what I believe Jesus and, and John would have us to see are three shocking elements of God washing the feet of men. Three shocking elements of God washing the feet of men. All that we have just covered tells us the story, and what we're gonna see in the rest of this passage is essentially the explanation of the scene that just happened. And in this explanation, we'll see three shocking elements of God washing the feet of men. The first shocking element is the illogical nature of the act. The illogical nature of the act. We have to ask the question, why does Peter, in, in verses 6 and 8, why does Peter respond the way that he does? What is it about this scene that causes Peter to respond with such intensity towards Jesus? And the answer to that is that Peter understood how illogical this act was. For Jesus, the teacher and master, to be washing the feet of his followers is an illogical act. It doesn't make sense that he would do that. There is no, no one who is a teacher that would wash the feet of his students. It's illogical. Peter is 
the vocal leader of the disciples. But everyone in this room would have understood how illogical this was. They all would have known. This doesn't happen. Nobody does this. But just in case they missed it, Jesus explains it to them. Look at verse 12. So when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, so now we're in this teaching stage, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Do you know what I have just done to you, he asks. And, and immediately he begins to answer it. And, and as soon as we jump into verses 13, we start to see the illogical nature of this as explained by Jesus. He says, you call me teacher and Lord. And you are right, for so I am. Jesus prefaces what he's about to tell his disciples with his own authority. He looks at the disciples and he says, you call me Lord. You call me teacher and you're right to do so. I am your teacher. I am your master. I am your Lord. That statement should render everything that Jesus just did is non-existent. Because verse 13 is true, because he is the teacher, because he is the Lord, he shouldn't have washed their feet. It's illogical. It's illogical. I think, again, there are so few cultural references that help us to understand just how strange this is. So I think it may be helpful to jump back just for a minute and talk about what all is wrapped up in the washing of feet. In, in this culture, in this time, men would have walked around wearing sandals and they would have been walking around um, often on, on just dirt, dusty roads. And so, because they're wearing sandals and because they're walking around on, on dirty, dusty ground, there was a cultural need Kind of like when we go into each other's house and sometimes take our shoes off. There was a cultural need for feet to be washed. There was a need for feet that were dirty to be cleansed. And it was a very commonplace thing to do that for your guest. In fact, it was, it was just a basic point of hospitality. When you, have, when you have someone into your home, this, this was essentially what you did for them. They came to you, and because they walked to you, they came with dirty feet. And so as a hospitable host, you washed the feet of your guest. It involved getting on your hands and knees, pouring water from one basin to another, wiping down their feet. However, the ones who washed the feet of others was not typically the host himself or herself. This was a job that was almost exclusively reserved as the work of servants and slaves. 
this is a job that was reserved and perceived as, as so low that very rarely do we even see anyone in this culture, anyone Jewish doing it. This was a job that was reserved for non-Jewish slaves. And so, when someone like Jesus offers to do this, it makes sense that Peter would respond the way that he responds. It, it, it just, it wouldn't make sense to respond any other way. No, no, I'm not going to let you wash me off. This isn't a job that you should do. This isn't even a job that I should do. This is a job that's reserved for those who are perceived in their culture as, as the lowest of the low. Uh, understanding that adds so much to the illogical nature of what's happening in this passage. That God is washing the feet of his creatures. That God is taking on the form of, of a slave, of a servant for those who do not deserve it. An interesting side note on the washing of feet is that this was a task that generally happened as soon as someone entered into the house. This was something where they would have walked through the front door and, 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 and someone would have been waiting for them to wash their feet. I just want you to make a mental note of that because we'll come back to this in a few minutes. That didn't happen in this scene. There was no one waiting at the door to wash their feet. So it makes sense. It makes sense that Peter would respond the way that he did. It makes sense that Jesus would say what he says in verse 16. A slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. Jesus, the disciples, everyone here would have readily recognized the illogical nature of this act. It's, it's, it's readily apparent. Culturally, this is shocking. Teachers don't wash the feet of their students. And, and, and in this scene, remember all that's in, John, in, the, in the Gospel of John, in this scene, it's, it's not just a teacher washing the feet of his students. It's God. God washing the feet of his creatures. All authority is in his hands. And he's using those hands to wash the feet of his creatures. The illogical nature of this act is that God is washing the feet of his creatures. I just want to ask the question, how, how are we doing this? How are you doing what Christ did here. And, and, and I say that with the full awareness that the actual answer is we can't do ultimately what Christ does here. Because we don't have the authority that Christ has. The significance of the event is that someone so high would stoop so low. The problem is we're already low. <laughs> But, but, but as we contemplate what Jesus does for us here, 
passages like, like Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 that come to mind. The, 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 in the body of Christ, everyone is to treat everyone else as more important than themselves. Let me just read that verse to you. Paul says in Philippians 2, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourself. So, so I approach interaction with the body of Christ with the presupposition that everyone I interact with is more important than me. It's very similar to what Jesus models for us in this passage. It's illogical in nature. It's, it's not, we're not prone to do that, but, but nor would it be expected that Jesus would do anything like what we see in this passage. If we look to our lives and we don't see this, I, I would just ask the question, do your actions suggest that you think yourself higher than God? Because God can do this. And if God can humble himself to this level, what do our actions suggest that we think about ourselves? Well, Jesus essentially preaches that message to his disciples as he transitions to a second shocking element. The second shocking element is the unexpected purpose of the act. The unexpected purpose of the act. It's illogical in nature, and the illogical nature of the act demands an explanation. Why would Jesus do this? Why would he do this? What would demand that the God with all authority would use those hands to wash the feet of his creatures? Why would he do that? And the why, the answer, the purpose is given in verses 14 and 15. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did for you. Everything that Jesus does in this passage is an example for us. That's the unexpected purpose, to set an example for his followers. The unexpected purpose of the act is to set an example for his followers. That's exactly what Jesus says in verses 14 and 15. If I, in all of the illogical nature of what you just saw and all that was explained, if I, the Lord and teacher, would wash your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. It's an example. It's given that we would do the same. Now, the question is, what is the same? 
What is the example that we are to follow? There are some churches that, that believe that, that obedience to this means that, that, that we actually go about the process of washing each other's feet. And there's foot washing services. Um, hallelujah that we're not one of those churches, right? What is Jesus modeling? What is Jesus modeling? What Jesus is showing in this scene is complete, selfless, and sacrificial service. The complete denial of oneself. Look, this is a cultural event. The washing of feet happened all the time there. It doesn't happen in our culture. So, so the application of this is not then to, to wash one another's feet, but to selfly and to sacrificially serve one another as Jesus modeled for us. That's the purpose of this entire scene, that we would follow his example. Verse 17, verse 17, Jesus says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So Jesus sets the example, says this is what you need to do, and then places a carrot out in front of his disciples and out in front of us when he says, look, this is what you need to do. Follow my example. By the way, if you do it, you will be blessed. You will be blessed. In that statement, Jesus acknowledges what he knows about his disciples and what's equally true of us, that we would be prone to know these things and to not do them. That we would be prone to say yes Absolutely. We should serve one another sacrificially and yet walk away unchanged. Similar to what James says, be not hearers of the word only, but be doers. This is Jesus equivalent to that statement. You know these things, great. Disciples, you, you better know these things. You've spent three years with me, but you become blessed if you do them. The knowledge of what to do doesn't actually get you anywhere. Knowing these things is great, but blessing is associated with, with performing in the, the obedience to Jesus Christ. And we're blessing it. It's a lot in the New Testament. It has connotations of, of happiness, of, of being well off. Do these things and it will be well with you. Do these things and you, you, you will be blessed. That blessing may be physical. Not necessarily, but maybe. It's definitely a spiritual blessing. There, there is absolutely reward for this. For obedience to Christ and following his example and sacrificially serving one another. Do this and you will be blessed. What exactly that blessing is, we're not told in this passage, but the statement enough should be motivating. There is blessing associated with following Christ's example. So follow his example. Just think how horrifying it would be if... Mission Road Bible Church was a church that knew the truth and yet walked away unchanged. Jesus warns against that in John chapter 13, verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. 
So this is an example for his disciples. And I would submit to you this morning that this is an example that they desperately, desperately needed. I want to draw your attention back to the beginning, the beginning of this story. And, and, and just ask the question, where were the disciples when Jesus begins to do this? Where were they? Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper and laid aside his garments and taking a towel and girded himself, he washed the disciples' feet. When Jesus begins to do this, the disciples were all sitting around the table with Jesus eating. I want to just recall your attention back to what we said just a few moments ago. When was the washing of feet supposed to happen? It, it, was, it was whenever the guests entered the house. This was like the initial thing. It's like ha have your guests over and, and it's winter and it's cold out. You don't wait until you're done with dinner to take their coats, right? It'd be weird if you did. If they're sitting there, they walk into your house, and they're sitting at the table eating dinner with, with a hat and big burly coat on. That's, that's not how we conduct ourselves. Like the initial thing is when you come in from the cold, hey, let me take your coat. Let me take that for you. Very similar in their culture. You come in, let me wash your feet. I say all that to say that didn't happen here. Jesus made it to the dinner table. And he was eating dinner with dirty feet. He, he had made it that far and, and no one in the building had taken it upon themselves to say, we need to take care of the master and the teacher. The disciples desperately needed Jesus' example because they thought themselves higher than they were. But it actually gets far worse than that. Not only did the disciples miss the opportunity to serve their, their master, their teacher, their Lord. Luke 22 is telling us about this exact same scene. And I'd like us to, to turn in our Bibles over there because it gives us even more context to why Jesus does what he does. Luke chapter 22. This is... Passover scene, the final hours of Jesus with his disciples. And what's happening in this scene is before Jesus has washed the feet. They're sitting around having this initial meal. I want you to look at verse 24 of Luke chapter 22. And there arose also a dispute among them, the disciples, as to which one of them was regarded to be the greatest. The next several verses explain that dispute. The disciples are sitting around the table arguing with each other about who at the table is the greatest. Greatest. 
Jesus. Jesus corrects their thinking. He says in verse 26, it is not this way with you, but the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table, but I am among you as the one who serves? And it's that event that most likely propels Jesus to start washing their feet. The disciples have missed every opportunity. They've they've missed the whole thing. This is Jesus' last night on earth before his death. It's his last night, and it's, it's his last dinner before his death. And he gets into the house, and he makes it to the table, and no one, no one serves him. No one washes his feet. Not only that, but they're at the table, and all his disciples are arguing about who among them is the greatest. And Jesus teaches them an essential lesson. The greatest one among you is the one who serves. But he doesn't just teach it. Back in John 13, he models it. He gets up from the table. He takes on the form of a servant. And he washes their feet. Jesus models for his disciples what they must do. Selflessly and sacrificially serving one another. It's helpful to have a, a teacher um, who's willing to model what he calls his disciples to do. As our, as our boy Ezekiel is getting older, I become increasingly aware of the mantra, do as I say and not as I do, as uh, there are things he's not allowed to do that, 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 that I am. I'm allowed to grab books from the bookshelf. He's not allowed to climb the bookshelf. And so the mantra becomes, I know, I know you see me doing these things, but you're not allowed to do this. And he's 11 months old, so there's not all that explanation. But it shows me the value of having someone that you're following that's willing to model what obedience looks like. Jesus says, serve. If you want to be the greatest, place yourself as the least. And then he gets on his hands and knees and he does that for the men who follow him. What an example. What a model. So the question becomes, will we follow his example? Will we obey? Will we do what he calls us to do? You have to know that in this scene, the disciples, they, they, they have to be humiliated because they know exactly what's going on. It's illogical, but it's done as an example for them. That brings us to a third point this morning, and we'll move through this fairly briefly, but this is so, so important. The third shocking factor, the third shocking element is the unfathomable extent of the act. The unfathomable extent of the act. In many of your Bibles, that's the end of the story. Jesus washing his disciples' feet. But what follows in the next few verses is really significant to understanding all that just happened. 
Before we were told this story, in the beginning of John chapter 13, I want to draw your attention to verse 2, because in the beginning of this scene, we're given an interesting head note. That during supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Why is that note given at the beginning of this story? Why are we told that? It's certainly not a necessary inclusion. But it's given right before the story is told. And note, it's just fascinating, that, that as soon as the story is done, we return to that same theme. Verses 18 through 26 are all about the fact that Judas is going to betray Jesus. And we're told before this story that that was in his heart the whole time. Judas knew what he was going to do. It was in his heart. It was in his mind. Jesus knew what Judas was going to do. There's brackets on this story. There's brackets that one of Jesus' followers is going to betray him. All through this scene, Judas knows that. All through this scene, Jesus knows that. And he washes his feet anyways. Jesus washes the feet of the one who would betray him. That's the unfathomable extent of the act. That God is serving the one who would betray him. Can you imagine? Can you imagine knowing what Jesus knows? He knows this is coming. He's already prophesied to his disciples about the fact that this is coming. Can you imagine knowing what Jesus knows and serving sacrificially and selflessly Judas? One of the 12 who has spent countless hours with Jesus, he's followed Jesus, and Jesus has been pouring into him and teaching him and caring for him and revealing himself to him, and yet he knows that this man that I've poured all of this into is about to betray me, and he gets down on his hands and his knees, and he washes his feet. He, he, he washes his feet and then he sends him on his way to betray him. Judas walks away to betray Jesus with clean feet. You just wonder if that's, if that's going through Judas's mind as he's walking on dirty roads and he sees feet that were just cleaned by the man he's about to betray. That, that is unfathomable. The extent of that act knows no comparison. That God 
would wash the feet of the man who would betray him. So, so I just I want to ask, are there limits? Are there limits to who we will serve? Because this is included in the example that Jesus sets. Not just washing the feet of the men who will remain faithful to him, but washing the feet of, of the man who would betray him. Are there limits to who we will serve? There, there are people in your life that are easy for you to serve. And then there's people in your life that are, that are really difficult for you to serve. I want us to observe that there's no limits to who Jesus will serve. There's no limits to who Jesus humbles himself for because he does it for Judas. who's about to go and for 30 pieces of silver, hand them over. Can you imagine knowing that someone in this room was going to do that to you and you knew who that was and doing this anyways? The unfathomable extent of the act is that God is washing the feet of the one who would betray him. This, however, is it's only the beginning of what Jesus is going to of what Jesus is going to do for his enemies. This scene, no doubt, is an incredible example of Christ serving, humbling himself for the sake of another. But it's not actually the greatest example. In fact, it's not even the greatest example in this 24-hour period of Jesus' life. In about 12 hours from this scene, Jesus would willingly be hanging on the cross to pay for the sins of man. Judas is just a few hours from betraying him. Jesus would be led away, given a makeshift illegal trial and condemned to death though there was no guilt found. He'd be beaten, he would be nailed to a cross and he'd be crucified. After about six hours on the cross, he would die and he will do all of that for the sake of his enemies. He would do all of that for the sake of those who were opposed to him to pay the penalty for our sin. Washing the feet of the man who would betray you is one thing, and it's an amazing thing, but it is a whole different level to talk about dying for your enemies. That's exactly what Jesus, again, would model. Selfless and sacrificial service that knows no limits, it knows no ends. Jesus would pay for our sins that if anyone would repent of their sin and place their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they would be forgiven of that sin. This, what's coming in the next 24 hours, is exactly why Jesus is so quick to rebuke Peter. Remember the beginning of the scene, that, that Jesus gets down on his hands and knees in front of Peter, and Peter says, no, you don't wash me. And Jesus says, Peter, don't try to stop me humbling myself. You don't want to stop me humbling myself. Me selflessly and sacrificially humbling myself for you is essential to your salvation. Jesus knows what's coming. 
Peter doesn't. So when Peter resists the washing, Jesus says, you need me, Peter. You need me to humble myself beneath you. You need me to do that which you cannot do yourself. So he washes his feet. Washes all the disciples' feet. He washes Judas' feet as an example for us. All of this, an example to follow. It knows no cultural equivalent. So let's together note that it's, it's illogical in nature, but he does it anyways. There's an unexpected purpose to set an example for us, and the extent of it is unfathomable. 